tonight, we want to do a sort of a background study that links up with our verse-by-verse study of the book of Acts. And we tonight, what we want to do for a few minutes is talk about the accuracy of the book of Acts. I think a lot of us probably take for granted that, sure, the Bible is accurate in all respects. Every book of the Bible is accurate, but not everybody thinks that. And in particular, in regards to the book of Acts, there has been some criticism. It started in the mid-1800s. Some people who identified themselves as a school of higher critical thought decided that they did not think that the book of Acts was historically accurate. One of the leading proponents of that view was a fellow by the name of F.C. Bauer, Bohr, B-A-U-R, Uh, And he said this sort of thing. He said, Acts is seen as a product of a highly skillful and imaginative creative writer of the latter part of the second century A.D. So get that. He said this this was somebody's imagination at work. And it was in the second half of the second century, maybe in 175 or 180 A.D., almost 100 years after the last apostle died. He goes on to say the author was a, a... artful and captivating storyteller who weaved together tales of intrigue and suspense into a theological tapestry. In other words, the author was not writing history, but theology. Uh, Whoever this writer might have been, he goes on to say, he did not intend the book of Acts to be a historical account uh, of the early church. Uh, Indeed, it is quite unhistorical in many accounts and details, Hence, we should not expect it to be a history book of the earliest Christians, as that was not even the author's intention. Now, that's the kind of criticism the book of Acts has received. And in that time, a little over 150 years ago, it began to influence a lot of people who began to accept that argument that the book of Acts was not particularly historical, that it was just sort of a a fairy tale, a narrative, a dreamed-up story, if you will. As I said, it influenced a lot of people, and one of them was a really well-known author who has also done a lot of archaeology, and that fellow's name, Sir William Ramsey. Sir William Ramsey lived from 1851 to 1939, and based upon the criticisms that he had heard, this is what he initially believed. He said, I had read a good deal of modern criticism about the book of Acts and dutifully accepted the current opinion that it was written during the second half of the second century by an author who wished to influence the minds of people in his own time by a highly wrought and imaginative description of the early church. His object was not to present a trustworthy picture of facts in the period about A.D. 50, but to produce a certain effect on his own time by setting forth a carefully colored account of events and persons of that older period. He wrote for his contemporaries, not for truth. And so this Sir William Ramsey, who was who is a well-known archaeologist, he had come to believe that that's the truth about Acts, that it's not really particularly accurate, that it is not historical. But... He's an archaeologist, and he was literally digging up evidence through archaeological explorations. And over time, as he kept making those archaeological discoveries, he became convinced that Acts was remarkably accurate. So we just read what he initially thought, 
But here's what he ended up believing. He said, the present writer takes a view that Luke's history is unsurpassed in respect of its trustworthiness. At this point, we are describing what reasons and arguments changed the minds of the one who began under the impression that the history was written long after the events and that it was untrustworthy as a whole. Get that. He said, I want to tell you about the things that changed my mind. I want to tell you about the things that I have discovered, Ramsey says, that makes me believe that the book of Acts is incredibly unsurpassed in its accuracy and trustworthiness. So, just to sort of lay the groundwork for our study, know that the book of Acts has been challenged, that the historicity of the book of Acts has been questioned, and some influential people took that point of view and they influenced others, including someone like Sir William Ramsey. But Ramsey was honest enough that as he was doing his archaeological discoveries, he was unearthing, literally unearthing the evidence that proves that the book of Acts was absolutely true. Another great scholar of his day, another great scholar of his day was J.B. Lightfoot. And he said, no ancient work affords so many tests of veracity, for no other has such numerous points of contact in all directions with contemporary history, politics, and topography, whether Jewish, Greek, or Roman. And so Lightfoot said that his conclusion was that the book of Acts was incredibly accurate. We think that he is right. He goes on to point out that in the book of Acts, which we think is an, a history book of the events in the early church, he says it mentions 32 countries. Well, you think about 32 countries being mentioned and then also being mentioned in geographical reference to one another. That's a, that's a point of validation. Is the geography accurate? When it talks about these various places, are they described accurately? He says 54 cities are mentioned in the book of Acts. I'd never had to take time to count that. But that's pretty impressive that 54 cities are named. Again, you have a chance to compare what the Acts says to what is known of those places in those times. He says nine Mediterranean islands are mentioned. Again, going to the geographical accuracy of the book of Acts. He says 95 different people are mentioned in the book of Acts. 62 of them are not mentioned in any other New Testament book. 27 of them that are mentioned are non-Christians, most of them being civil or military officials and therefore their roles, their offices, their locations are verifiable. So what we're saying is the book of Acts has been questioned for its accuracy, but those who have been honest enough to investigate carefully have now come around to saying, we think the book of Acts is really accurate. What I want to do then for the rest of our short study tonight is to look at some examples of that kind of accuracy in the book of Acts. Now, on Wednesday night, we're doing a verse-by-verse study, so in time we will come to these passages, but I want us to skip ahead now because we're just emphasizing this. We're just emphasizing that the book of Acts is incredibly accurate. Let's look at some examples. First of all, in Acts chapter 9, I hope you all have your Bibles open. We're going to stay right in the book of Acts tonight. But in Acts chapter 9, we read about Saul of Tarsus in the city of Damascus. You remember in verse 6, Saul was on the the road to Damascus. He was actually going there to persecute Christians. uh, And the Lord appeared to him on the road. And in verse 6, Saul of Tarsus, our apostle Paul later, 
Saul of Tarsus, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city. It shall be told thee what thou must do. So he, he was instructed to go on into Damascus. In verse 11, it describes how the Lord appeared to a man named Ananias. In verse 11, the Lord said unto Ananias, Arise and go into the street which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he prayeth. You know that Ananias went, Saul was baptized, he began immediately to preach and teach the truth about Jesus Christ, so much so that his life was threatened. Uh, and there, were, there were Jews who were going to try to kill him, and that necessitated, skip to verse 25, the disciples took him by night and led him down by the wall in a basket. All right. Now think about that. There's a lot in that story. I was going to spend our whole time tonight talking about the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. That's not our point. There were some points of reference there in what we just read. In Damascus, a street called Straight, the city had walls around it. Okay, what do we know about that? Well, uh, archaeologists have discovered section of sections of the ancient wall that was around the city of Damascus. So there's the verification. It was a walled city. Also, the street called Straight was an east-west street that is still one of the main thoroughfares of Damascus. It had colonnaded halls on either side and imposing gates at each end and presumably was as well known in antiquity as it is today. Verification of the street called Straight. Well, that points to historical accuracy, doesn't it? When Luke was writing about what happened to Saul of Tarsus, he got it right. Damascus, a walled city, a street called Straight. Archaeology has confirmed the accuracy of Acts. Go a little further. Go into chapter 12. In chapter 12, there's an interesting historical note about something that happened to a king... The king was Herod Agrippa. He, in, the, in the King James Version here, he's just identified as Herod, but we think he was Herod Agrippa, one of the Herod family of kings. In Acts chapter 12, verse 20, Herod was highly displeased with them of Tyre and Sidon, but they came with one accord to him, and having made Blastus, the king's chamberlain, their friend, desired peace, because their country was nourished by the king's country. And upon a set day... Herod arrayed in royal apparel, sat upon his throne, and made an oration unto them. And the people gave a shout, saying, It is the voice of a God, not of a man. And immediately the angel of the Lord smote him, because he gave not God the glory, and he was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost. The famous historian, this famous Jewish historian, Josephus, actually writes about this. He says, On the second day, this is from his Antiquities of the Jews, he says, on the second day of which shows, uh, of which he put on a garment made wholly of silver and of a contexture truly wonderful and came into the theater early in the morning, at which time the silver of his garment being illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays upon it shone out after a surprising manner. And presently his flatterers cried out, Be thou merciful to us, for although we have hitherto reverenced thee only as a man, yet shall we henceforth own thee as superior to mortal nature. Upon this the king did neither rebuke them nor reject their impious flattery. A severe pain also arose in his belly, 
And when he had been quite worn by the pain in his belly for five days, he departed this life. And so the death of Herod Agrippa, that's a historical note. Josephus actually mentions it, and what he mentions of it lines up exactly with what we read in the book of Acts. Get this, we say the book of Acts is a history book. It's the history of early Christianity. It's the history of the church when it first began and as it spread throughout all the known world. Can we trust its history? And the conclusion is yes, absolutely so. In Acts chapter 13, and we're just going to keep progressing right on through the book of Acts here, picking up some historical footnotes that we can confirm. In Acts chapter 13, we read about Paul and Barnabas, they were on their first missionary journey. In Acts 13, beginning at verse 4, So they, being sent forth by the Holy Ghost, departed unto Seleucia, and from thence they sailed to Cyprus. And when they were at Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had also John to their minister. And when they had gone throughout the isle to Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew, whose name was Bar-Jesus, he, uh, which was with the deputy of the country, Sergius Paulus, a prudent man, who called for Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear the word of God. All right, so we've got an identification here of Sergius Paulus, who was... Now, the King James says there uh, that he was the deputy of the country. The New American Standard actually more accurately identifies him as the proconsul, uh, the proconsul. Sergius Paulus. Well, interestingly, archaeologists have found evidence indicating that Sergius Paulus was indeed a Roman governor in Cyprus in the year 1877, which is just a little over 100 years ago, 150 years ago. An inscription was uncovered a short distance north of Paphos bearing Sergius Paulus' name and title of proconsul. Archaeology. They dug up a plaque uh, and they found there uh, uh, evidence that what Luke said about Sergius Paulus as the proconsul of Cyprus, an accurate thing indeed. Are you beginning to get the picture here? Every time we have a point of reference where we can check the book of Acts in regards to known history or known geography, every time we have a point of reference that allows us to cross-check the book of Acts shows up accurately. Look at Acts 17. In Acts 17, we have the, the instance of the Apostle Paul who was in the city of Athens. We won't take time to read the whole account of his dealings with the idol worshipers in Athens. But I want you to, to especially notice in verse 22... Paul stood up in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. And Paul's sermon goes on. But it is said there that in Athens, Paul found an idol that was to an unknown God. Well, what about this idea of an, an, such an idol uh, in the city of Athens? Pausanias, who was a Greek historian, visited Athens between 143 and 159 A.D., saw such altars. Uh, in describing his trip from the harbor to Athens, he wrote, quote, The temple of Athene, Skiras, 
is also there, and one of Zeus farther off, and altars of the unknown gods. Apollonius of Tyre, who died in AD AD 98, spoke of Athens as the place where, quote, altars are set up in honor of even unknown gods. And so some secular writers uh, identify and, again, give credibility to the statement about Paul finding such an altar, finding such an idolatrous place of worship in Athens, an idol to the unknown God. Secular writers said they did that in Athens. And so again, we have confirmation. Look at Acts chapter 18. In chapter Acts chapter 18, beginning verse 1. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth and found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because that Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome, and Paul came to them. Now notice, there's again a political event that we might be able to confirm if we search through history. What about the idea that Claudius Caesar had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome? What about that? Well, uh, the Roman historian Sidonius records such an order, quote, as the Jews were indulging in constant riots at the instigation of Christ, he, he banished them from Rome, speaking of, that's written in the, the life of Claudius. Now, we don't think that what he says there is accurate. We don't think that the Christians were constantly composing or, 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 or indulging or setting off riots, but the fact is stated that he did expel the Jews, Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome. A point of history, could it be confirmed and the answer is yes, we actually have confirmation of the same. Still there in Acts chapter 18, look down at verse 11. Acts 18, verse 11. Uh, so Paul stays in Corinth, and it says that, verse 11, he continued there a, a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. And when Gallio was the deputy of Achaia, the Jews made insurrection with one accord against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuadeth men to worship God contrary to the law. So Paul was called before the authorities in Corinth, specifically before a man named Gallio, who was the deputy of Achaia. The word deputy in the King James there also would be translated in other versions as proconsul. The New American Standard says he was the proconsul. What do we know about that? Is, is that something we can confirm or not? Well, archaeologists have found a stone uh, probably once attached to the outer wall of the Temple of Apollo. Inscribed in it is a copy of a letter from Claudius to the city of Delphi naming Gallio as the friend of Claudius and proconsul of Achaia. Again, there's a, there's a plaque, a stone, engraved with this man Gallio's name and identifies him as the proconsul of Achaia. Are you beginning to see a trend here? I mean, we're, we're just going almost every chapter here in a row and finding again and again and again historical reference points. But really, that's what you would do if you're writing a history, right? You're going to write a history, 
And you're going to connect the history you're writing. The history of the book of Acts is primarily about early Christians. It's about the apostles. It's the acts of the apostles. We said in our study Wednesday night, it's the history of what happened. After Jesus died and was resurrected, ascended to heaven, what happened among the apostles and those they converted? What happened among the early Christians? What happened as the church expanded and went through all the known world of that day? It's a history. So if you're writing such a history, even if you're not, and we think Luke was inspired, but even if you weren't an inspired author, if you're writing a history book, you're going to tie the history that you're focusing on with other events in history, trying to tie those things all together. Luke did that. He did it perfectly. He did it by inspiration. But look at these points of reference and how all of them are lining up with one another. Let's keep going. Look in chapter 19. In chapter 19, we have the Apostle Paul uh, in the city of Ephesus. Notice in verse 23, Acts 19, verse 23. And the same time there arose no small stir about that way, speaking of the way that, that Paul was preaching. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, which made silver shrines for Diana, brought no small gain unto the craftsmen, whom he called together with the workmen of like uh, occupation, and said, Sirs, Ye know that by this craft we have our wealth. Moreover, ye see and hear that not alone at Ephesus, but also throughout all Asia, this Paul hath uh, persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they be no gods which are made with hands. So that not only is this our craft in danger to be set at naught, but also that the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised and her magnificence should be destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worshipeth. Well, what about this? Now, these are the, the, the recorded words of Demetrius. Demetrius himself obviously wasn't an inspired man. He wasn't a believer. But he made his money fabricating silver shrines to the goddess Diana. And the reason why he got things stirred up is if we let this Paul have his way, he's going to destroy our market. There won't be any market for selling these shrines to Diana if we let this Paul go around and teach that there are no such true idols, that there's only one true living God, if we let him succeed, he's already caused us a lot of grief. And and through that kind of reasoning, Demetrius was able to provoke a riot there in the city of Ephesus. What do we know about this? Well, the temple of Diana in Ephesus was a magnificent thing. It was actually identified as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The temple of Diana in Ephesus was apparently quite magnificent. And we are told... Uh, Richard Longnecker in his Expositor's Bible commentary says, Thousands of pilgrims and tourists came to Ephesus from far and near around it and swarmed all sorts of tradesmen and hucksters who made their living by supplying visitors with food and lodging, dedicatory offerings, and souvenirs. Uh, uh, the, the temple of Artemis or Diana was also a major uh, attraction. It says, he goes on to say, these small models of the temple with the statue of Diana inside would be set up in the houses or even worn as amulets. So, get this, it's sort of like what you would, what you would, might encounter if you went to the city of New York. Uh, and maybe you buy a little statue of the Statue of Liberty and you take it home as sort of a souvenir from your trip. Well, all these many visitors to Ephesus would buy souvenirs. And the souvenir they bought 
was a miniature example of the Temple of Diana with Diana actually apparently visible within it. And sometimes they even wore them around their neck. They certainly set them up in their homes as shrines. Get this, temples of Diana have been found in Spain and in France. What's that tell you? Well, that tells you that this this account in the book of Acts is accurate. And this is why Demetrius and the other silversmiths were enraged at what Paul was doing. He was wrecking their business. Anybody who was converted from idolatry to the true and living God would not be interested in buying a souvenir of the temple of Diana. And so their business was at risk. Demetrius stirred the people up into a riot to try and stop that from happening. But what we know historically is there were lots of visitors who came there to Ephesus. And there were souvenir shrines of Diana taken home with them. They've been found even as far away as Spain and France. Again, the accuracy of the book of Acts. In chapter 21... We read about Paul. Now as the, as the book of Acts moves on toward its conclusion, we know that Paul, after the end of his third missionary journey, returned to Jerusalem and he was arrested when he was in Jerusalem. And the Jews brought certain false accusations against him. Look in Acts 21 at verse 27. So Paul was with some other Jews in the temple It says, when the seven days of their purification were almost ended, the Jews which were of Asia, when they saw him in the temple, stirred up all the people and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man that teacheth all men everywhere against the people and the law and this place. And further, he brought Greeks also into the temple and hath polluted this holy place. For they had seen before with him in the city Trophimus and and, 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 uh, Ephesus, Ephesian, Ephesian, I guess I said it, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. He had not, but they supposed that he had. And they accused him of defiling the temple by bringing in a non-Jew. Well, what do we know about that? What can we say historically about whether that would actually be uh, an issue or a crime or or anything that anybody might be worried about? F.F. Bruce says, that no Gentile, quote, that no Gentile might unwittingly enter into the forbidden areas. Notices in Greek and Latin were fixed to the barrier at the foot of the steps leading up to the inner precincts, warning them that death was the penalty for further ingress. Two of these notices, both written in Greek, have been found. One was found in 1871 and the other found in 1935. The text of which reads, quote, No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the temple and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. Get that. Paul was charged. It wasn't a true charge. It was a false charge. They were looking for anything that they might latch upon to accuse him. And he was accused of violating the sanctity of the temple by bringing in a non-Jew. Well, that, in fact, was a big deal among the Jews in Jerusalem at that time. And even they have even found warning signs telling non-Jews not to go in. Paul hadn't actually brought a non-Jew into the temple. They simply assumed that he had and falsely accused him of doing so. But again, we have some confirmation of the book of Acts there. In Acts 28, we're almost done. In Acts 28, we know that... The Apostle Paul, when he was 
being transported to Rome to stand trial before Caesar, we remember that there was a horrendous shipwreck and they ended up on the island of Malta in the Mediterranean just south of Italy. And uh, in Acts chapter 28, verse 7, just one note, Acts 28, verse 7 says, in the same quarters, that is on this island of Malta, were possessions of the chief man of the island whose name was Publius, who received us and lodged us three days courteously. So notice that uh, some versions say he was the first man of the island. The King James says he was the chief man of the island. Well, inscriptions have been recently discovered on the island that indeed give Publius the title of first man. So even here we have confirmation of Acts. And then just one more uh, that, that we want to add to this, and that is finally in that last chapter of Acts, chapter 28, we read, so they finally leave Malta, they arrive in Italy, and they make, they make landing, and then they are, are by, by foot or by land, they have to make the final leg of the journey to Rome there in Italy. And in chapter 28, verse 14, uh, into verse 13, we came the next day to Petulioli, where we, where we found brethren and were desired to tarry with them seven days. And so we went on toward Rome. And from thence, when the brethren heard of us, they came to meet us as far as Appi Forum and the three taverns, whom when Paul saw, he thanked God and took courage. Well, what do we know about that? Well, the fact of the matter is that this Appy Forum uh, uh, was one of the early, they called them halting stations that were built every 10 to 15 miles along the entire length of the Roman road system. Uh, and others got as far as three taverns in, another halting station about 33 miles from Rome. So we, we have a reference to two locations on the road to Rome Appy Forum and the three taverns, and those were known stations. We'd probably refer to them as like rest stops on the road. The Romans were known to have constructed such in their pretty intricate road system. And these were two known places uh, that are identified there as Paul was making that final leg of his journey uh, by land to Rome. Well, uh, what do we say then? The book of Acts appears to be really accurate, doesn't it? Uh, as we said earlier, Luke names a number of countries. He num- names a number of cities. He names a lot of people, many of them being civil and military leaders that history would have also noted as well. And every time we found one of those, we've been able to find that, yes, in fact, that's an accurate reference. So I just want to take you back to what we said at the start. There became a popular way of thinking in the mid-1800s, which said, you know, the book of Acts is just the imagination of some creative writer. And that whenever it was written to convey true history, it was written to just sort of tell a fairy tale story, an imaginative story of how Christianity spread throughout the world, but it's not factual at all. What we find out with an open mind and a little simple investigation is there's all kinds of evidence that indicates the book of Acts is incredibly accurate. So I thought tonight that that might be a helpful thing for us 
as we will link that up with our verse-by-verse study of Acts that we intend to do and continue on Wednesday.